Last week we finished up Exodus chapter 8 by looking at the fourth plague that God brought upon Pharaoh in Egypt. This plague was an infliction on the Egyptians of swarms of flies. Unique to this plague was, for the first time, God made a separation between Goshen, where the Hebrews dwelt, and the rest of Egypt. As God was increasing the intensity of the plagues, he was also increasing the separation between his people and the people of Pharaoh. This establishes a theme that is consistent throughout the scriptures, and that is the theme of judgment redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, God uses the same tools to judge sin and to redeem those that trust him. The highest example of this and the example, of course, that all others point to is found in the cross of Jesus Christ, where all sin was judged and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ for you and for me. And thereby secured salvation for all who trust him. All other instances of that judgment redemption theme points to that great truth of the cross. Finally, the text once again warned us about the wiles of the devil and some of the tactics that he has used and will use to increase the suffering of those created in the image of God. As Christians, we would be wise to recognize our enemy's schemes and oppose them in prayer and courage as we trust our king for his perfect deliverance. Today's message, and I didn't get a PowerPoint done um, this week, uh, so I'll try and, try and help you follow, follow along as we go through today's message. It's entitled, of course, The Fifth Plague, Disease on the Livestock. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 9 and the first seven verses. Exodus chapter 9, the first seven verses. Let's read them together. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. A very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for the opportunity to immerse ourselves in your truth as you have revealed it by your spirit through your word in the scriptures. Thank you for these seven verses that we can just reflect on briefly this morning 
And I pray that by your spirit, you would cause them, these words, this text, to draw us into your presence, um, falling before your feet in worship, in our hearts. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Verses 1 through 4 is God's warning to Pharaoh once again. With the previous plague, the fourth, God initiated the second set of three plagues with which he brought swarms of flies on Egypt. So far, the plagues have affected the water, the land, and the air, and all the Egyptian gods associated with them. Pharaoh might have been wondering at this point, what else can the God of the Hebrews do to me? Well, he would soon find out to the great sorrow of his land and his people. So he is warned again. The mercy and patience of God are hard to imagine, aren't they? God's people living so long under the yoke of slavery are call, a calling out to him for deliverance. Pharaoh continues in his stubborn refusal to free them, even after promising Moses that he would, twice now. And God still patiently warns Pharaoh to let his people go. It is hard to comprehend how much higher God's ways are than man's ways, as he continues to work out his plan for his people. I thought of myself just very briefly as a parent, as I considered this. You've had this, anybody that's a parent in here, you've had a child and you've said, you've given them some instruction, maybe, okay, it's time to clean up your room. And you expect them to go clean up their room, at least if you're a new parent. <clears throat> and it doesn't get done, and so a little while later you say, clean up your room, or there's going to be consequences. And you expect that they will clean up their room, because... Um, they probably don't want to learn what the consequences are. And, and you continue to say that a third time and a fourth time. If you get to a fourth or a fifth time, maybe, uh, maybe we should talk about parenting. <laughs> but we've lost our patience after a couple times, haven't we? Like I know I, after two, like if I've told you once and maybe it slipped your mind because you have a slippery mind. But I've told you twice now, and it's like, do you know what? No, it's time now. Like, it's going to happen now. First of all, you're going to get punished. Then you're going to do what I say. Imagine, imagine God here, and he patiently warns Pharaoh, look, let my people go, or it's, my judgment's going to fall on you. And Pharaoh continues to say, no, no, no. No, even after punishment. I, I, find it, I find it almost unimaginable how patient God is in this scenario with Pharaoh. And, I'm, and I kind of <laughs> wish that God would have just let the hammer fall at this point, right? It's like, no, it's, it's done. And yet when I look at my own life, I'm pretty thankful that he's patient. I'm pretty thankful that he hasn't let the hammer fall in my own life because how many times have I done the same thing and rebelled really in my heart against God and he still somehow extended grace and mercy to me one more time. 
As God gives this warning to Pharaoh before the fifth plague, he emphasizes his name to Pharaoh, the Lord God of the Hebrews, Yahweh Elohim of the Hebrews. There is no mistaking the source of the plague, and there was no mistaking who it was that Pharaoh was rebelling against. And you'll notice that God's message doesn't change. And I've mentioned this several in several other messages, and I will mention it again. God's message of redemption and deliverance has not changed. And it is a two-part message. Number one, let my people go. These are God's people, and they were to be set free. The people did not belong to Pharaoh. And number two, God demanded their freedom so that they could serve him. God did not look down on the Hebrews in their slavery and misery and decide to set them free so that he could move on to his next project. God wanted the people to be free so that they could serve him. They were to worship him and represent him to the nations as a unique kingdom of priests. God makes this crystal clear a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, just before he gives the law through Moses. Deliverance, redemption, salvation, whatever you want to call it, is the beginning of God's work, not only in the history of Israel, but also in the life of the Christian believer. God has not set you free, Christian, that you might live unto yourself or pursue selfish ambitions, or to sit in a rocking chair and wait for heaven. God has set you free, if you have trusted Christ, to serve him. What does that look like? Well, I don't know specifically for you, but I can say this. It begins with the little things. Tell the truth. Love your neighbor. Obey your parents. Encourage someone. Give away something that's precious to you that someone else needs. Be humble. Be gentle. Be kind. Laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. Little everyday things will transform your world one tiny bit at a time when it's done for Christ. Some folks look for that huge world-changing thing that you can do. Do you know what that world-changing thing is? Giving a little one a glass of water in the name of Christ. Obeying your parents. Loving your neighbor. That's what that world-changing thing is. We look way out there and what we need to do is look right here. What's the little thing I can do today that shows the love of Christ to someone who needs the love of Christ? Back to our text. God says he's going to send a very severe pestilence. This word pestilence is not merely an illness or a spreading infection or discomfort or inconvenience even, but a disease that would decimate the livestock of the Egyptians. The King James calls it a very grievous moraine, 
And that's really a much better word. It's, it's a brand new word to me this week. I had not, I, I've never encountered it before. The New Living Translation calls it a deadly plague. That word moraine, by the way, we get a few words from it. One of the words we get from it is murder. It has the idea of death. This isn't an illness. This is something that just wipes out the cattle. If you have been following in this series, you'll recall that in the previous plague in which the Egyptians were inflicted with swarms of flies, the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews dwelt, was spared. We know from later passages in Exodus that there were also Egyptians living amongst the Hebrews in the land of Goshen. For example, just before the Hebrews left Egypt after the 10th plague, the Bible says that the Israelites asked for gold and silver and clothing from their Egyptian neighbors before they left the country. You can read about that account at the beginning of Exodus 11. So, to get to the point, the Egyptians who lived in Goshen alongside the Hebrews would also have been spared the plague of flies simply due to their proximity to God's people. Can you imagine being a blessing because you belong to God? In this plague, however, the Lord does not say that he will spare the land of Goshen, but that he will spare his people, the Hebrews and their flocks and herds from this plague. This means that the herds of the Egyptians and the herds of the Israelites who would have been dwelling side by side and maybe even eating the same food and drinking the same water, yet the Hebrews did not lose one animal and the Egyptians lost all. In fact, if Genesis 47 verse 6 is any guide for us, Pharaoh himself had livestock in Goshen, and he would have lost them all. What would this have told the Egyptians about the Lord God of the Hebrews? For one, unlike the Egyptian gods, the God of the Hebrews cared about his people. This concept was utterly foreign to the Egyptians. Their gods had a realm which they took care of, maybe the sun or the moon or the Nile or the cattle, and each god would be concerned only about their particular part of the created order. The Egyptian people may benefit or not, depending on the whims of any particular god, but that god didn't care about them as persons, that god just took care of the Nile, or took care of the cattle, never mind what that did for the people. But not so with the God of the Hebrews. He shows in this plague that he is not only in control of every aspect of the created order, but that he cares about the well-being of his people. God would bless his people. Why? Because they were his people. The God of Israel was nothing like any of the gods imagined by the Egyptians or any other polytheistic culture. Just as a point of interest, God said he was going to bring this pestilence on the cattle of the field. Because in the very next plague, plague number six, the livestock of the Egyptians is struck again, some have suggested that 
if the average everyday Egyptian, not Pharaoh, but the regular folks like you and I, would have heeded the warning and kept their cattle sheltered during the time appointed for the plague, these animals would have been spared, even if it were only for a short time. There are other explanations for the presence of Egyptian cattle in future plagues, which I will point out shortly, but I just wanted to mention this one because of the specific wording in verse 3 that says God will strike the cattle of the field. And so, beginning in verse 5, the plague strikes. By the previous plagues, particularly numbers 3 and 4, the gnats and the flies, the Egyptians' religious ceremonies had been interrupted. But now, with this plague, the animals that were said to contain the spirits of some of Egypt's chief gods fall under God's hand of judgment. Up to this point, God was showing his power over the realms controlled by the gods. Now he is showing his power over the gods themselves. In Goshen, where the cattle are merely beasts, given and created by Jehovah for service to man, they remain untouched. But in all other parts of the country where they are worshipped as gods, they die. Osiris, known to the Egyptians as the Savior, cannot even save the animal in which his own soul is supposed to dwell. Apis and Menevis, the bull gods, wiped out. Hathor, the cow goddess, wiped out. Ammon, the god of the rams, wiped out. Sais, the sheep god, and Mendes, the goat god, wiped out. All perished together. Fast forward to Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, and Moses tells the Israelites there, On their gods the Lord executed judgments. And recall the words of Jethro, when he had heard from Moses all that God had done in Egypt, he confessed uh, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing which they behaved proudly, he was above them. All the livestock of Egypt died. Though this may seem to us like a lighter plague than those preceding it, specifically in terms of immediate personal suffering, it was doubtless more troubling to the Egyptians because it involved much greater future suffering. This was not only a judgment on the Egyptian gods, but simultaneously on Egyptian wealth. Before this, the hand of God had been against them for a short time, and the trial had been removed together with the plague. But now, the destruction of the cattle will affect them for many years. In the ancient world, wealth was often measured in the amount of cattle owned. Recall Job or Abraham. Verse 6 of today's text says that all the livestock of the Egypt died, and yet... The very next plague mentions that the Egyptian livestock is once again affected. Now, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but 
Bible skeptics have used this point to try and discredit the scripture. And so I'll just mention a few possible explanations for this so that uh, you're not troubled by what somebody who's skeptical might say. The first explanation is the one I already mentioned. Verse 3, that it says that it is the cattle of the field that is struck. So any other livestock that might have been kept in some sort of shelter would have been spared. A second explanation is that the cattle of the Hebrews is not struck. So Pharaoh could have commandeered their cattle to supplement or restart his own flocks once again with other Egyptians buying from Pharaoh. A third explanation would be that no time frame between any of the plagues is suggested. So there may have been plenty of time for the young livestock of the Hebrews to reproduce and replenish the numbers of the decimated Egyptian livestock. And the final explanation is that the Bible often uses hyperbole to describe situations like this because that was a common uh, use of, in ancient literature, uh, ancient literature and not at all considered to be dishonest. A more familiar example may be taken from the time when Joshua was leading the Israelite tribes into the Promised Land, and the scriptures describe how the Israelite army utterly wiped out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, and the Perizzites, and yet we encounter these people groups further on in the text. It's a way of saying that they gained complete victory. That's just the way uh, the ancient Hebrew works. So when the text says that all of the livestock of the Egyptian died, it might mean that the portion that maybe did not die, that got sick and recovered, was so small that it paled in comparison to those that did. We do the same kind of thing today with no intent to deceive. I might say something like, every Canadian is suffering under high gas prices. Well, not the Canadians that own the wells, and so uh, you know what I mean when I say every Canadian is suffering under high gas prices. It's just a tool we use all the time. You guys know what I mean. I'm not trying to deceive anyone. And so the text in verse 6 might be doing the same sort of thing here. Now, I'm not partial to any of these explanations in particular. It could be any one of them or all of them. I don't know. I leave it to your discretion to decide. I'm just bringing this forward to show that there is no need here to question the integrity or the accuracy of the text. What is Pharaoh's response? Moses told Pharaoh that the Israelites and their cattle would be spared. And Pharaoh was suspicious enough to check out whether Moses had spoken truly. Or, perhaps a more accurate way to put this would be to say that Pharaoh was suspicious enough to check out whether Moses had lied. I think it is safe to say at this point that Pharaoh was not checking for the truth, but desperately seeking for any speck of deception to excuse himself in his rebellion against God. I'm going to finish today's message here shortly with some application of today's text to our lives today. But at this point, I cannot resist just pointing out an obvious truth about human nature that I think we can discern there in verse 7. Like Pharaoh, many people, when confronted with the truth of God, will only approach it from a position of doubt rather than simple faith.
For example, there are people that, for whatever reason, maybe they are going through a difficult time in life or they have been challenged by a friend or a family member, will pick up the Bible and start reading. But even as they're reading, they're looking for errors, contradictions, or even simply statements they don't like. <coughs> they are not really on a search for the truth. They would rather disregard the truth than to be confronted by it. If these same people would be willing to humble themselves and search the scriptures for truth, they might surprise themselves by what they find there, particularly in the words of Christ in the Gospels. These are not the teachings of some mere man. The words of Christ are piercing, transformative words of truth, unmatched by any other person in history. Don't misunderstand me. There is room for healthy skepticism. Lies do not stand up to scrutiny, but the truth does not mind being challenged. The Bible says of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? In that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They received the words of Paul, the gospel, as truth, and then they searched. I believe in the power of scripture because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. If you are sincerely seeking truth, I would encourage you to pick up your Bible and say a little prayer, something like, God, if this is truly your word, would you open my heart to it and help me to see its truth? Then open it and read the Gospel of John, which is an account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth presented as the Son of God. Like the Bereans, be fair-minded and receive the word with all readiness to find out whether these things are so. Contrast this approach with Pharaoh's approach in today's scripture. He is inflexible, not only without a reason, but against reason. One of the challenges of teaching through the plagues of Exodus is to recognize the uniqueness of each plague. It would be easy to preach the same message week after week, something like God told Pharaoh to let his people go, Pharaoh refused, God punished Pharaoh, Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week. And it would save me a lot of preparation time for like 10 weeks. But God didn't inflict 10 plagues on Egypt just to repeat himself so that I could have 10 easy short messages to preach in a row. Each plague has some unique feature that increasingly reveals to us Jehovah, God of Israel. In this plague, Unlike the previous plagues, Pharaoh could not beg for a deliverance or make promises that he would later break in order to get relief. The livestock was dead. There was no, would you pray to God and intercede for me that the water would, that the blood would turn back to water or that the frogs would go away or that the flies would go away. The livestock was dead. The toothpaste, as somebody recently said, was out of the tube. There was no putting it back. 
The line had been drawn in the sand, as it were, by God, and Pharaoh in Egypt had no choice but to deal with the consequences of God's judgment. There does come a line in the sand, folks. <clears throat> On the other hand, whatever the poorest Israelite possessed, the Lord was the protector of it. Does that not encourage you? You might be the poorest Christian in existence right now, and the Lord is the protector of all you have. Even when the king of the known world, Pharaoh, the richest man, has all taken away from him by the hand of the Lord. God cares for you. And even after Pharaoh had cattle of his people, and uh, so had the cattle um, of his people and the Hebrews inspected to see whether or not the words of Moses had come to pass or not, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Even the exact correspondence of the result with the announcement of Moses did not move the heart of the king. It remained hardened, literally heavy, unmovable. Loss of property would not much distress an absolute monarch who could easily just exact the value of what he lost from his subjects or even perhaps from the Hebrew slaves. This plague would have been felt much more keenly by the ordinary Egyptians than by Pharaoh. So it truly revealed the heart of Pharaoh toward his people, the lesser Egyptians, the deplorables, and surely found Pharaoh wanting. It is probably with this plague that the Egyptians really began to see that Pharaoh had only his own interests in mind and cared little about the well-being of his people, aside from what they could provide for his power and his wealth and his comfort. A good leader would be touched by the infirmities of his people and do what he could to bring relief to them and strengthen his nation. But this plague and Pharaoh's response showed clearly that Pharaoh was not a good king, no matter how great he may have been. Would we not rather have a good king than a great king? In many ways, this fifth plague may have been the beginning of the opportunities for the average everyday Egyptian to switch his allegiance from Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt to the one true God of Israel. It was so personal. God stated this, in fact, as one of his purposes. Back in chapter 7, verse 9, God says to Moses, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, not Pharaoh. You and I, just the salt of the earth, the regular person, could see what God was doing. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them, the Egyptians could know, personally. Much of Pharaoh's own property likely perished, but he was the last man in the country who would feel personal inconvenience by the loss, and therefore nothing was more natural than that he continue in his pride rebellion against the Lord. 
It didn't really cost me. So no, I'm not changing my mind. We'll tie up today's message with one final thought, one final principle that we'll glean from today's text. God has blessed us immeasurably, but we are weak. And for any one of us, our blessings can begin to look like gods in our own lives rather than <coughs> gifts from the Lord's hand. As Christian believers, we must be ever alert. We must walk close to our Savior and be so familiar with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives that we do not fall into the trap of worshiping our stuff. As some folks might say, I don't worship my stuff. I don't get on my knees before it, and I don't pray to it, and I don't sing songs to it. But when we recognize that worship is giving honor to that which is most valuable to us, that which we deem worthy, it becomes a much more subtle problem, doesn't it? And it's a problem that we can only avoid as we walk rightly before our God, giving thanks for his blessings. I cannot emphasize that enough. When we forget to give thanks to God for that which he has given to us, we forget and we begin to worship our things as God rather than the hand that gave it. Folks, I encourage you, when you pray, start with thankfulness. Count your blessings, like the, like the hymn says. Start listing off the things that God has given to you, things that you're thankful for because they're from his hand, and there enter into worship of the God who gives, not the things that can be taken away. And we must live in the eternal spiritual blessings Christ has obtained for us at the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for your word. We are thankful that it is a living word, that it describes accurately things that took place a long time ago, but it is filled with the Spirit of God. It is inspired by the Spirit of God so that it speaks to us in a living and real way, even today. Lord, we pray that it is by your Spirit we receive your Word. Without your Spirit, they are just words. They're just history. They're just a description of events. But as your Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts and breathes these words into our lives, they become transformative and powerful. And so we ask that it is your spirit that does this in each of our lives this morning. As we go downstairs and partake of the food that, again, is a mere blessing from your hand to us, we pray that we would be thankful to you, thankful for that which you have given, but recognize that it is from your hand and that we worship you and you alone. I pray as we go through the upcoming week, as there are uh, things happening all over the world that are beginning to affect us even here, that we would rest in you, 
We trust you to move by your hand in the events, even great events, that are happening all over the world. And trust that as your people, we will walk with Christ day by day with our eternal spirits protected in him as we trust him. Thank you for all of these things. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for Jesus Christ and his love on that cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.